Listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting live from UBC's Point Care campus on the unceded ancestral and traditional Muslim territory in Vancouver. I am your host, Sarah Unju, and I'm really excited that you're listening today because today is our last show of 2021. Unfortunately, we're not having a show next week. Uh, but you know what? We're going to be back in January. We're going to take a break until school starts up again. And then we're going to be back better than ever. So let's just make the last one of 2021 count, shall we? So what do we have planned for you today? We have not a lot, quite honestly, when it mm, quantity-wise, <laughs> but quality <laughs> Now that's, yeah, that's where we come in. <laughs> so we have two interviews and a review. One of our interviews is the one I did with Eric Light about Corleone, which is a men's choir here in Vancouver. And the second one is the one Ruby did with um, Luisa Tronco about drink water which is a movie being shown in the Whistler Film Festival. So if you don't know, Whistler Film Festival is happening right now. You can access films both in person and online. So if you want to go to Whistler during your winter break, but you don't know how to ski or snowboard, so you don't want to be doing those sports. But you're also like, you know, it's a ski village. Like, what am I supposed to do besides those two things? And drinking, like literally skiing, snowboarding, and drinking. Those are the three activities <laughs> that people think there are in Whistler. But there's also so much more. There's the Whistler Film Festival happening. You can get a pass. You can get single tickets literally up to you check out what movies they're showing and get your tickets and go see movies in Whistler and they also Whistler has museums and art galleries so if you don't want to be doing any sports in Whistler you can do those things too <laughs> just to let you know you know so um Whistler Film Festival let me just pull up my information really quick. I should have done this before, but I'll be very honest with you all. Yesterday was my birthday, and I was out with my friends very late. I think I went to sleep at like 4 a.m. I fell asleep watching Burlesque, which is just an amazing movie. Burlesque in itself as an art form form it's so good but also um yeah I what else was I saying <laughs> oh yeah mm, yeah so I'm a bit tired as you can tell <laughs> didn't get a lot of sleep but you know what none of that is important because what's important is our content today so if you go to whistlerfilmfestival.com very straightforward uh website uh, you'll see all of the, uh, you can say, you can click on the film festival, uh, you can look at the content summit, every single thing. They have um, panels and they have films and they have events. So you can access their movies online until December 31st, which is just freaking amazing. <laughs> but yeah, um, although before going into our interview, about Drink Water, which is, as I said, a movie featured in the Whistler Film Festival. We're going to be listening to our interview with Eric Light first. And honestly, I'm not going to give much information slash introduction about Eric Light because he does that in the interview for you to hear. <laughs> so I'll just leave you to listen and I'll be right back after the interview. Hello everyone, today I'm with Eric Light who is the Artistic Director of Corleone. Hi Eric, how are you doing? I'm really well, thanks for chatting with me. Of course, thank you for being here. 
So uh, let's start off with, for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us what Corleone is and why we're talking about it today? Corleone is a amateur male choir based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we are in our 30th season. Uh, we perform uh, about 35 concerts a year, which for an amateur choir uh, makes us one of, probably one of the most uh, active choirs, amateur choirs in North America. So uh, we are excited to be back and singing after this pandemic, and we are getting ready for our Christmas with Corleone programs. Yes, 30th season. That's amazing. Oh, that's so wonderful. Hope you'll get to have 30 and so much more. Um, so, Eric, as the artistic director, how did you um, come about becoming the artistic director of Corleone? Well, about uh, now it is uh, nine years ago, uh, they did a search for a new artistic director, and they did an international search. I grew up in the United States and was living there at the time. Uh, but I'd worked with Corleone in the past, uh, probably around uh, the year 2000, 2001. I'd been to a couple different festivals with the choir and knew them really well and knew they had a great reputation. And I thought, well, I guess I will apply for this job. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't know if I what I felt about that at the time, but I thought, oh, I'll just do that, and uh, did my uh, first audition with the choir and got to meet the choir for the first time and, and really just, just fell in love with uh, mm -hmm. who they are. Uh, it's just the, the warmest, most uh, amazing group of people, uh, let alone men. Um, and uh, I just, uh, I, I, once I had that first rehearsal with them, I was like, I better get this job. I'm, I, I, I really want to work with uh, work with them. So I've been now artistic director. Uh, uh, this is my seventh or eighth full season. I can't even count anymore. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's that's amazing. And as the artistic director, do you ever? Um, so usually, artistic directors are doing work. Um, in the background, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes, very you, much. Yeah. <laughs> are you ever um, on the front too um, with the men of Corleone, or just like any other artistic director, are you sticking to the background? No. Well, I it I get to, I get the best of both worlds. So uh, as you say, uh, and and I think it's really wise that you that you understand that uh, most of what an artistic director does is is planning and uh, and so much of the background work and uh, and scheming up all of these these programs and collaborations etc cetera, etc cetera. but i'm also the conductor of the choir so i take it all the way through uh, to the end and conduct the choir in its rehearsals and all of its performances so um, I had been an artistic director of a professional ensemble uh, previous to this job uh, mm -hmm. in the United States, and my job was kind of, as you say, it was in the programming and the, and the planning and, and, and kind of the behind-the-scenes sort of thing. But I really missed uh, being in that moment with the music, with the singers, with the audience, and so um, I get to do both of those things now. That's amazing. So in this uh, Christmas performance, people will get to see you too then as a conductor? Yes. They, they always get to see the backside of me. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, in fact, I just got a haircut today and I always tell them, make sure that the back looks good. That's the only thing anyone sees anyway. So. <laughs> amazing. That's so funny. Um, so as you said, you weren't able to perform uh, during lockdown because of COVID. Um, mm -hmm. So your last performance was in 2019, I want to say? Well, actually, um, just a few weeks ago, we had our very first performance uh, since uh, the pandemic. Uh, we do an annual Remembrance Day program. Mm -hmm. So for 30 years, Corleone's been marking Remembrance Day with a concert. And so we were finally able to get back and sing that live in our new performing area of um our new performance space of uh, St. Andrew's Wesley uh, Church in downtown Vancouver, which has just been renovated. So it was it was our return to that program, as well as a return to uh, that venue of, of, of St. Andrew's, but uh, everything felt brand new uh, mm -hmm. with that amount of time off and uh, with the renovation that they did in the space. 
it was just uh, it's it kind of an amazing experience. So we're now glad to know get that get that first one behind us in yeah. some ways. It, it was a very emotional time, and now yeah. we can just sort of get back into just enjoying uh, giving concerts to lots of people. Yes, exactly. I myself like being in the audience. I felt like I was gonna cry the first time I was back in the theater watching something. I can't imagine how it must feel as a performer. It's oh. very overwhelming. It's very <laughs> overwhelming. I think you know, for uh, for me personally, and I think I can speak on behalf of all of the choir. You know, we do this so that we can connect with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, we enjoy rehearsals and we enjoy making that music for ourselves. But it's in that act of sharing that um, the real magic happens and the transforming uh, can happen. So um, to be able to be back to that again is is very special. Yeah, definitely. Did you guys take on any projects during the lockdown um, that wasn't performing? <laughs> Many. Um, <laughs> I started a weekly uh, interview program, so I did it on... Uh, Uh, we did it on uh, YouTube and Facebook Live, and uh, so I was able to talk to some of my choral idols from all over the world for oh. about uh, a year and a half. We were doing that uh, every week and sharing music. Uh, the other thing is we had uh, uh, about seven years of concerts filmed in, in high on high def uh, that we had never really done anything with, with the oh. choir. So we did digital concerts that we were able to release, Um, we d- we tried to do last year around this time a uh, an, a sound installation aspect of it, but even even that uh, because of how the pandemic went, uh, we weren't able to to put that out there. Though though we did some recording and things with the choir, so um, so yeah, this is this is this is really feeling like the the, the return to the real stuff. But mm-hmm. we were very 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 busy, and in fact, we're keeping digital concerts as a part of our offering. Um, going forward, free digital concerts for um, all of our programs uh, th- this season, uh, as well as the live ones, because we found it was an incredible way to be able to offer um, our music to people around the world. It was able; we were able to offer it to people who may not have the money or the means to get to uh, a downtown venue and be at the live show. And so um, it's a really wonderful way for us to fulfill our mission of sharing our music in, in, in this way by using these digital things that we've now all figured out because we had to because of the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so that's so wonderful. So people um, will be able to enjoy Christmas with Corleone from uh, the comfort of their own homes if they want to. Indeed, yeah. We and we try to, you know, uh, nothing really replaces the live experience. There is something mm-hmm. magical that happens in listening to live unamplified music with, you know, eight hundred other people in the room, and that uh, that that feeling of sharing in the listening is 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 going to be so amazing as part of the live experience, but. Then we're also we've gotten I have to say pretty good at the at the at the production side of things of making beautiful looking videos and that allows you to have those close ups with the camera mm-hmm. and and to see faces in a way that you normally don't so yes. for us it's it's about telling the same story in two very very different ways and uh, one is you know one's in that live aspect where you're feeling the the, the totality of of the experience. And one is, I think, a little bit more intimate uh, experience, which you can see on the screen. And I, I kind of like having both mm. now. It's, it's, it's really fun. Yes, definitely. Couldn't have put it better myself. Um, <laughs> what are some titles that you guys are performing in Christmas with Corleone? Well, one of the things that we're really proud of is that we uh, we do a lot of commissioning. That mm-hmm. is, um, having different composers and arrangers write music for us. And Christmas is a wonderful time uh, because it's it's a time where there's a lot of music where people know uh, know the songs. But it's always my job to try to find uh, ways to to do something that's familiar but also fresh at the same time. So we have, uh, oh gosh, I think it's about four or five different uh, world premieres of different arrangements uh, for the choir, uh, but of of some familiar songs and and maybe a couple unfamiliar ones. Um, So uh, one of of the ones I'm really excited to do 
is uh, during the pandemic, I had a, quite a bit of time on my hands and mm-hmm. was able to do some do some uh, looking and research into um, kind of older pop Christmas songs, which is not necessarily my my jam, but mm-hmm. I I went into it anyway, and I found this old Bing Crosby uh, song that was recorded probably I think it was 1950 with the Andrews Sisters, and it's one I'd never heard before. In yeah. fact, I started asking all my friends who know a lot more about that era of music, "Have you ever heard this?" song they're like no i've never heard this song and it's like it's just perfect it's like it's exactly that sort of bing crosby sort of uh, uh christmas song that you'd want to want to hear and why it hasn't been a hit for you know since that time i don't know but we have this uh, fantastic arrangement of it um put together by ken cormier who is our uh, uh, normally our, our, our uh, collaborative pianist for the with the choir, mm-hmm. and he's done this great arrangement for the choir as well as we've got a, a, a bunch of, of solo guys that are, are portraying the Andrews sisters. So uh, I think that's going to be uh, I think that's going to be a, a real revelation for people to hear this song that it's going to seem like it should have been a hit forever, but uh, here it is. So oh, it's so exciting. <laughs> um... And also, I read that um, Christmas with Corleone is also featuring guest artist Cameron Wilson, who is a fiddler, I believe, right? Yeah, fiddler, violinist. He plays jazz violin. Um, He can do it all. And uh, one of the things that when you bring in, and he's also been an old friend of of mine Mm -hmm. and the choirs, we played together many, many, many times. So... Um, it's uh, it sort of feels like we're getting the band back together here, it, which is which is great. But uh, because Cam is so uh, flexible in his playing and his and, and and the styles that he can play, it really lets me go crazy as far as um, how I program because I want to show mm-hmm. off all the things that he can do as well. Um, and uh, because he's got such range, it just uh, it, it, it gives me it gives me so much to work with. And uh, and I think it's going to add so much energy and uh, different colors to the program and uh, and variety to the uh, to the styles of music that people are going to hear on the program. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And do you guys have any other performances planned for After Christmas with Corleone that we can look? Oh at? yeah. We have a we have a we have a really full season. So beginning of March, we do a show called Pop Capella, mm-hmm. and that's where we uh, take on uh, popular songs uh, from all the eras, and uh, and most of them are all brand new arrangements for choirs, and we put together um, a band for that and do that with you know a, a, a full lighting show and all the rest of it at St Andrews. So it's going to be cool to kind of turn Saint, uh, this 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 gem of a church downtown into. Uh, into a rock club for a couple <laughs> nights in at the beginning of March. Uh, we do a uh, a male choral festival, uh, which is a three day affair in in May, and uh, that's going to have a brand new professional ensemble that I am starting. I'm I'm uh, flying in uh, some of the best singer professional ensemble singers from across North America mm-hmm. uh, to be with us uh, in a in a brand new ensemble that we're creating, as well as singing with Corleone, and then we work with a um, uh, we have a an educational program that we do that's 10 weeks and so that involves about 150 180 young singers from across the lower mainland so they come together at the chan and we uh, we all sing together as well as a festival choir so all all said and done it's usually 300 to 400 singers on stage uh, singing together and boy after being a part like this that's going to feel incredible yes yes even imagining it is just incredible. Can't can't wait for it to actually happen. Um, can you remind us when the Christmas with Corleone performances are happening and where people can get tickets? Yes. Uh, so we've got a show on the 17th. We've got three shows on the 18th of December and two shows on the 20th of December. And all of those tickets can be uh, purchased at corleone.org. Wonderful. And also, if I'm not mistaken, there's going to be a post-concert uh, talk on the opening night featuring you and Rick Clough, right? That's correct. So if you have, you can come to that and whatever baffled you about the program, you can ask me some questions or if you want to complain or, or praise, whatever. Uh, uh, it's a time that we can, uh, that we can chat. And that's, uh, that's, been a, that's been a fun uh, moment to be able to interact in that way. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, Eric, that's all of my questions. Do you have anything that you would like to add? 
No, no, thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me and talking to me about um, Corleone. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. The haunting debut album Black Moon by Civic TV provides a cinematic backdrop, a modern-day symphony of the dark and light that is our collective reality. Take a listen to Black Moon, now available via Flemish Eye Records and on all streaming platforms. The Aboriginal Frontier Society is a culturally safe, peer-designed, non-judgmental place for Aboriginal peoples, their friends and their family in the downtown Eastside. It's an accessible space where Aboriginal folks can experience, learn and participate in traditional Aboriginal culture, teachings and ceremonies as part of their healing journey through life. Right now, they're accepting donations of food and warm clothing, which are needed more than ever as residents of the downtown Eastside face the challenges of COVID-19 and winter weather. If you're able to help, you can drop your donation off at 384 Main Street on weekdays between 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. That is 384 Main Street. To learn more about the Aboriginal Front Door Society and other ways that you can support their work, please visit abfrontdoor.org. Hello. Hi. We're back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Eric Light about Corleone and their Christmas with, well, Christmas performance, which is Christmas with Corleone. And I'm going to leave all of you again. I'm sorry. I know you might be enjoying my babbling and like not being able to find the right words, <laughs> which is perfect for radio broadcasting. I know. <laughs> but alas, I must leave you again for another interview. But first, before I go... Uh, let me introduce you to the interview really quick. Um, so, as I said, Drink Water is the name of the film. <laughs> Starring Eric McCormack, Daniel Loheny, Luriza Tronco. The interview is with Luriza Tronco. You can watch the film online at the Whistler Film Festival's website until the end of the month which is the 31st, <laughs> and then it will be actually at a few more festivals in the new year. So if you can't catch drink water at the Whistler Film Festival, you can keep an eye out for other festivals to see if you can watch it then. And also, I want to mention, um, so one of our correspondents, Ruby, did this interview, and this was her first interview for the Arts Report. So... Quick little congratulations for for Ruby and yeah. Uh, also, I do want to mention that this interview is a little bit longer than the last one. It's not too long. It's only twenty five minutes. So just you know, relax, chill, and learn about drink water. Enjoy. Hi, Larissa. So nice to meet you. Hey. Um, thank you so much for sitting down with CITR, the UBC radio station. Um, I'm really excited to be talking to you. I just watched the film and it was really cute and really funny. And I was so engaged the whole time. Uh, it was also really nice to see, um, like I'm from Vancouver. So it was, it was nice to see all the BC landscapes or, right. or, and just think, oh, you know, like my school gym looked like that. The architecture looks <laughs> the same. So, so that was really exciting. I'm just wondering, are you from BC? Um, I'm actually originally from uh, Winnipeg. Um, but I moved, uh, for, for theater school, I moved to Victoria. So I lived in Victoria for two years and I've been living in Vancouver for the past, um, I think it's been almost nine years now. Wow. So I, I do think I, I'm, I, I always have like a split between like BC and Manitoba as my home, I think. So that line at the end about going to Winnipeg in the winter, was that added because you are from Winnipeg? Sure was. Sure was. Like they, a little inside dig yeah. at your home. <laughs> yeah. Luke and Ted, the writers, they they weren't sure how they wanted to end Wallace's story uh, for the film. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. um, when they found out I was from Winnipeg, they're like, oh, 
we know how to end this now. <laughs> <laughs> we know how to wrap it up. She's going back to Winnipeg. For, exactly. Um, well, I'm just wondering what drew you to the script? It's obviously really unique and very Canadian. Um, so like, what about it did you like? Um, you know, it, it's actually funny. When I first, uh, when my agent first sent me the script, you know, I, I read a lot and um, it was one of those characters that I just knew who she was. Yeah. I, I read Wallace and I went, oh, I know who she is and I want her. And, um, and what what was that initial, like, who did um, you think she was when you first read that? I think it was her, uh, her use of dry and sarcasm to mask her pain. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the use of, you know, humor and, um, you know, her dryness to... Um, uh, uh, to cope with her grieving. I found that really human about her and I found that uh, really relatable in some way. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just, I remember reading her, her and I was just like, yeah, I want her. It was one of those things of, I just kept like bugging my agent and was like, <laughs> did we get her? Did they watch my tape? Are we getting her? Because I was just like, I I, I feel like, I felt like I could do something with her. Mm-hmm. Um so it definitely wasn't passive for me at all. I wish I could be that cool person and be like, yeah, just like fell on my lap and everything totally worked fine. No, the people care. who want it the most is the ones who you, <laughs> I prefer those stories. <laughs> yeah. um, what did you feel like, did you identify with her in any way? Like what ways did you feel similar to her? What ways did you feel different? Um, I, yeah, sort of like I said, I, I think I really um, identified with her dryness and sarcasm. Um, I think what is sort of different about us is she had a way of walking through life really, really small. She didn't really want to be seen by a lot of people. She was kind of like a fly on the wall, especially moving to a new town. Um, and for me, um, that was a, a different um, aspect about her that I, I, I myself don't really identify with, I don't think. I, mm-hmm. I tend to take up a little bit more space being part of a Filipino family. We're just kind of born to be loud. Um, so I think um, being like the little fly on the wall, um, sort of the observer who yeah. zooms out of the big picture um, was quite interesting for me to, to explore with her. Right. And speaking of being a fly on the wall, you were working with Eric McCormack, who I love. I love Will and Grace. And <laughs> he was so good in that. Um, yeah. What was it like? I, I know you didn't have too many scenes with him, but what was Did you ever just like watch him act or or what was your relationship with him while you were filming? Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, amazing. He's so professional, so kind, so giving. Um, I remember yeah, we, we didn't have a lot of scenes together, but I remember the ones that we did, especially because um, the first day we filmed together was the scene where, you know, Mike and I are by the pool and I'm, this is the first time I'm opening up about uh, my mom um, and why I was there in the town. And then um, <laughs> Hank comes out in his, in his underwear, underwear. Yeah. and first of all, didn't tell us he was going to do that. It wasn't <laughs> written that he just decided to do that for the character. Which was so Hank. I was like, this <laughs> so hate because absolutely hate. and then he goes um hi wendy and doesn't even get my name right she, like my name's wallace and he says hi wendy and then he goes back in and he didn't he didn't tell us he was gonna do that and i just went oh right that is so brilliant because that's just him not getting the name right and just calling me whatever he thinks my name is and mm-hmm. it's just funny it just kind of sort of remember like reminded me of my dad of you know yeah. just, just saying the wrong name to my to my friends who've been over several times you know <laughs> definitely definitely um did were there any other moments where you got to improvise the the film was really funny like it had these very like sort of like Michael Sarah-esque moments with Mike so did you get to improvise at all um I did not I was not brave enough to improvise (laughs) um but but Daniel and Eric did quite a bit um and it was it was fun to watch them do their thing but I think I think Wallace needed to be grounded in in my opinion I think she needed to be a bit more grounded um for them to bounce off of and, and sort of, I don't know. I felt like she was sort of the glue for Mike and I understood where she needed to be for that. Also, I just, I don't know, going with Eric and Daniel, I'm just like, you guys are brilliant. I don't think you guys need me. I'll just let you guys do your thing. So no, but yeah, I definitely think Wallace, like Wallace would be too scared to improvise. So I feel like that, like that was sort of like true to who she was. She was like, 
she was not someone who had no filter. Like she definitely was just going to say what she wanted to say. So, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. And you filmed in Penticton. Is that right? Yeah, we did. We did, which was really refreshing because, you know, as an act, as a Canadian actor, a lot of my jobs, almost all of them, I think actually I've had to pretend to be American. I mean, I'm still being American in this as well, but the fact <laughs> that, which is ironic because it's, it's the most Canadian film ever, I, I think. Um, but the, 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 I think the refreshing thing about it is everybody else got to be Canadian. You know, yeah. we wanted to, you know, hammer in those, you know, uh, Canadian accents that, you know, Eric did. He really, you know, he, he brought that in and, you know, the stories, like, you know, the, the little... <laughs> bits of like the uh mm-hmm. things with the Canadian versus American teens like I think it was just a gift to have to be able to milk that and not have to pretend to be something else mm-hmm. um and sort of put a spotlight on in, on Canadian culture I would say yeah no I, I I really enjoyed that too as a Canadian and as someone who's like hey mm-hmm. those are my mountains or like yeah like, like that that felt really cool did you get a chance to talk to the writers about the role because I, I know it was obviously based on um Luke's father's story so like did you have a chance to discuss your character with them yeah of course um Luke and Ted were uh, always on set and always uh willing to collaborate and um, answer any of our questions mm-hmm. um Wallace originally wasn't uh supposed to be a love interest she I think she was originally supposed to be a a, a dude um and a, a friend of Mike's Um, I don't really remember what they said when they turned it into um, who she is now, but originally she wasn't obviously in the the short film that um, uh, Graham and Mike did um, back then and it sort of evolved into something else. I think that's sort of why it worked is because it was inspired by the short film and it had the same foundations, but they didn't um, they didn't let that be the limit of what they wanted it to be at the end. They allowed the, the writers to explore their own way on how to tell the story and how to um, elaborate on what was already made, I think. Yeah, no, that that was really cool. I loved that the son took what his father had made and sort of like layered it. I definitely mm-hmm. think the Wallace character is better as a female. I think it just adds more dimension to the story and to the town. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think that, I love that it's a true story um, and that he named Luke, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh. You're picking up on all the Easter eggs, aren't you? He's not the most sympathetic <laughs> character. So that was kind of impressive that he was willing to humble himself like that and be like, yeah, I'm going to let my, the character that's supposed to represent yeah. <laughs> my father uh, be named Luke. Um, what was it like working with Daniel um, and like sort of building your relationship? Did you guys like, did you guys meet at all outside of set and try to sort of like build up a camaraderie at all? Um, I don't know if we tried to build a camaraderie, but we we definitely hung out when we were. So we were in Penticton for I think it was about three and a half weeks or something like that. Um, so we were very immersed in the world. We obviously all my scenes were basically with him, of course. Um, but yeah, like we we would hang out. We obviously like had food together we had our lunches together and all that stuff but he's just a a really great guy and he's just so funny I'm sure I don't know if he's sick of people telling him that but he I I will always tell him that like he's probably the funniest person I've ever worked with Mm -hmm. um and uh he just had a like I just remember the first day when we started working because we didn't do a chemistry read or anything for the audition we we literally met basically on set Mm-hmm. And I remember when we first started acting together, the first time he started speaking and I started speaking, I went, oh, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> no matter what happens, yeah. I could really tank and I feel like I'm going to be okay because of this guy. Um, he's just really talented and, and really funny and, and a giving actor. So yeah, it's That's really awesome. great. And you filmed in the pandemic. Is that right? We sure did. It was it was the first job that I got out of the pandemic or I guess still during the pandemic. But yeah, it was the first one that I did when since the pandemic hit, which wow. was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So how was that different? Like what I noticed that a lot of the scenes were outside. Did you film mm-hmm. in the summer? 
Yeah, um, it was filmed actually, I think in end of September it was, but yeah, it was definitely different. Um, the nice thing for us, it, we it, it's an independent film, so we had a much smaller crew than, than other mm -hmm. projects, so that helped a lot. Um, yes, like you noticed, a lot of the uh, scenes were outside, so that was also really was great. Was that originally in the script for them to be outside, or did they sort of have to reconfigure that? Um, I think it was, yeah, because it's based on uh, his, you know, adventures running and his training. So I think it was originally um, uh, supposed to be outside. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was just different. And you can tell everybody just really wanted to be there for the work um you know Stephen Campanelli our amazing director he has been Clint Eastwood's camera operator for the past 30 years and um he really wanted to you know we were all sort of like oh what's happening with the film industry and you know our DOP like he he just you know finished Aquaman 3 like he like is a bunch of the crew um we were just so lucky to have them because really everybody so. just wanted to get back to work. Yeah, yeah. I think for a lot of us, want, it was our first thing out of the pandemic. So um, it was definitely a love letter to Canada and to, yeah. to the, being able to go back to work for sure. Oh, no, I, I, I felt that. Um, the scene with the Tim Hortons and you were like, oh, it's like Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. how, like, that's what I explain it to my American friends too. Like that's, right. that's the analogy that I use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely did feel that. Um, and so it was at, like, it was obviously for the Whistler or screened at the Whistler Film Festival. Mm -hmm. Did you at all get to get together to watch it or did you watch it on your own or how did that work with the pandemic? Uh, yeah, so we also attended uh, the Calgary International Film Festival. Um, but uh, before that, Stephen did show it to me and Daniel uh, prior to that. But the first time is always... Mm -hmm watching yourself for the first time in a part is just always a mess so it's <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, tell, me, it's, tell me about what that's like because I yeah, hear actors hate great. watching themselves <laughs> like what what did you what did you love about it because I know you probably have all your little criticisms about your own acting which was great um, but as but what did you love about it I loved everyone else in it how about that but everyone <laughs> everyone else did <laughs> no I, I I think it's it's just a thing that I've sort of um accepted the first time I, I see something with myself in it it's just it's never going to be Mm -hmm. a great feeling <laughs> you know what I mean no actor likes that um, yeah. <laughs> no it's really hard to zoom out I think um the first time but but when we we watched it at the Calgary International Film Festival together that was the first time in a theater that I watched it and that was a completely different experience mm -hmm. I I I sat in the back of the theater Daniel and I sat at the back of the theater and it was just so cool and overwhelming to watch people watch the film yeah that was mind-blowing I had never experienced anything like that in real time watching people laugh watching people cry watching people like engage with the film in real time like strangers mm -hmm. and because I, I usually work in tv and usually the stuff that I'm in people watch in their living room on, on Netflix or like whatever so it was just a different experience being in a theater and, and watching people watch is, is quite cool, actually. Yeah. I felt like the tone of the film was super consistent the whole time. And it had, you know, it had its heavy moments, um, but it was, it was overall a really fun sort of lighthearted film. Did you feel that while you were filming? Like, what were you expecting the tone to be in the movie to be? Um, I think, I think I sort of felt that right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting. I I try to make a music playlist for all the characters that I play, oh, and awesome. and before I even knew what this the soundtrack was going to sound like, um, all of Wallace's songs were '80s and '90s songs, mostly '80s. But it it and then when I heard the soundtrack, I was like, oh, this is so <laughs> bizarre. I, I it was just. I felt like they were reading my mind or I guess maybe I was reading their mind yeah. or, or whatever have you. But I think we sort of all knew that what what we wanted it to be in it. And I think it just at the end of the day, we wanted everyone to laugh and, and have a good time. So that's just another sign that you were so in tune with the character, like you understood the tone um, so well. 
that's 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 a really cute story yeah, it, was, it was weird it was very weird yeah <laughs> where do you think Wallace goes from here like she's dating Mike she's mm-hmm. on the debate team she's going to Winnipeg like <laughs> you know, she's she's grieving her mother living with her grandparents who were so kind where where does her life take her from here um you know I that is a really good question I think probably I think she's going to go into politics. Like, I think she's going to be like an AOC type, you know? Um, uh, and and uh, I think she probably wants to stay in Canada. I think she's found her home in Canada. Who wouldn't, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I hope her and Mike would stay together. I think they're, they make a great team, but they're also very young. So yeah. who knows? Yeah. Um, but I, I think, and I also think she would travel. I think she's someone who would want to see the world and travel um, after a while. So, yeah. And what, like, in the preparation for the character, um, did you build any kind of backstory for her, what her life was mm-hmm. like with her mother? Or, like, what was your process like in building that character? Yeah, I actually um, talked to the writers about that because there are still... Um, even after she shares her story, there's still, I think, quite a few questions about what happened, you know, like, what about, is there, is there a dad involved? Is there not, you know, um, and basically it was basically up, um, up to my interpretation. That's what they sort of said. They, they, you know, um, she lost her mother that same year, essentially when she moves in with her grandparents and sort of the, the backstory, I think that we were trying to portray is that, her and her grandparents never really had a full relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she moves into the their house, like obviously you see that that her room is not her room. It's very vintage and like, you know, old sort of style. And she she's supposed to look like a fish out of water, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about that a lot of how she's just a fish out of water in this, in this small town. Um, so, but I think... I think her and her mom were really close. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just been her and her mother the whole time. And I think that's why it pains her so much when um, she no, long, no longer has her. And she also sort of feels lost, you know? Um, I also think she's, she's really young and to expect someone to know exactly how to handle that, how to uh, deal with grief at that age. I think that's why I think I really um, was drawn to hers because I just felt the way that she dealt with things is so human. Yeah. And I think it should be completely acceptable of how, how people grieve. I don't think there's a right or wrong way on how to grieve a loss. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's what I took away from it. Like she had had this partner with her mother. Mm-hmm. They were sort of partners in life and her mother had been in so much pain and uh, now she was no longer with her partner. And I feel like she sort of was able to find a new type of partner with Mike which was really nice to see her open up because she definitely was a little more closed off. Is that, is that the journey that you saw for her? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I was talking about it with my dad. My dad had reviews for the movie as well. And, <laughs> and, and he was sort of like, you know, it's not Mike's fault. Like that's what he was, he was trying to preach to me. It's not, it's not Mike's fault because Wallace never told him straight up that she likes him. Right. And I, and I was sort of, I was like, I, I get that, but I think she just, sometimes you don't understand not only that age, my, you know, me as well. Like sometimes you don't understand exactly what you're going through yeah. until later on. So I think Maybe at first the reason why she was drawn to Mike was because he was really interesting and he was kind of weird and she's kind of weird, but he needed help. And so she he was sort of a distraction for her, to be honest. I think in the beginning. She could focus um, attention on his problems instead of her. On his exactly. I think that's what what had happened. And then through that, she realized that she had her problems that she hadn't dealt with. And I think that's when the scene with her grandfather came in. Um, And from him, I think she learned that, you know, after having that tough conversation of everyone needs help, you don't have to pretend to be strong. Because I think she was also strong for her mom. So I think she sort of carried that weight of being strong for somebody else through Mike as well. And when it doesn't work out for her, with her mom and with Mike. That was her role. 
Yeah. And when that doesn't work out with for her, she realizes that she doesn't always have to be that um, to have a relationship with somebody, mm-hmm. um, to have a healthy relationship with somebody. And so <laughs> you um, see those human patterns that everyone gets into in relationships. It's like, what's my role? I'm going to hold on to this role in every relationship I'm in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, I also am just curious because you're obviously like a local Vancouver actor. And um, I'm what advice would you give to Vancouver actors like looking to be in indie movies or on the Disney Channel or anything that you've done? Um, that's really that's really hard. I think honestly, I think it's just, you know, if you if you love it and you and you want to get into it, I say do it. I for me, I always try to preach of, you know don't try to get it right, get it you. Mm. So whatever that means to somebody, I think um, the scary thing thing with young actors or, or, you know, people wanting to be actors is they watch all these Hollywood movies and they see all these these people on their TV and and they say, oh, that's who I have to be in order to get there. Mm. But I think we're at a really interesting time now where things are evolving, things are getting more inclusive. Obviously there's still um, a lot of work to be done, but I think the important thing is is it it should be joyful and there's space for you, whatever that means for your interpretation of a character, for you to put a little piece of yourself in there. Um, And I think that's the, the way to go because that's what makes someone unique. That's what makes someone so endearing to watch is if there's a spark of yourself and you see the actor having fun with it. So that, that's my little piece of advice, but also like, what do I know? So <laughs> no, no, don't do that. I've, I haven't heard that term before. Um, and I think it's so applicable to the industry because like everyone has their own unique thing that they bring to the table, but they're all trying to emulate like Margot Robbie or someone. Uh, no, absolutely. Ab- absolutely. Yeah, you know, so don't and I, yourself. I think, I think that that's a really great and unique piece of advice. Um, thank you so much for your time. I just have one final question, which is what do you think um, the message of this movie is? Like, what does it leave with the audience? Um, oh, that is a good question. Um, I think at the end of the day, I don't know if it has a specific message, but for me, for my interpretation of, of what Wallace went through and, you know, what clearly Mike and Hank goes through, I think it's just, it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and to embrace that in order to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as for us, I think our main goal is to make people laugh. And I think laughter is the best medicine especially during these, you know, still dark times, you know, sometimes I think that's just our main goal was just to give people some medicine and um, some relief from what's happening. So. No. And and I think you definitely did that. I found myself laughing out loud multiple times by myself. So I definitely think that is a a main thing that you left with the audience. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so lovely to talk to you. And I'm so glad that I got a chance to um, screen your film. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for watching. I I really, we really truly hope that um, it makes people laugh because that's, that's what we want to do. So um, thank you so much for watching it and, and, and for this chat. <laughs> no, thank you. And, and have good luck with the rest of your career. I'm sure it'll be amazing. And <laughs> leaving us with the great advice. Thank you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye. Start off your new year with a new skill. This spring, Emily Carr University's continuing studies is proud to offer courses and workshops online and in person. Choose from over 100 courses, from weekend workshops designed for beginners to skills-focused certificate programs. Whether you're seeking an artistic outlet or looking to add to your professional skill toolkit, Emily Carr has you covered. From painting to print media, industrial design to web design, there's something for everyone. Find your fit at ecuad.ca slash cs. Register now and commit to your creative future. In the context of Vancouver's opioid crisis, CITR would like to take a moment to share some harm reduction strategies. 
Try not to do drugs alone. When going out, let friends know what drugs you're taking and make sure someone has an Naloxone kit. If you're able to, get your drugs tested before taking them. Avoid mixing opioids with alcohol or stimulants. Remember that opioids can include painkillers prescribed by a doctor, and it's possible for any drugs to be contaminated with opioids. Learn the signs of opioid overdose, which include, but are not limited to, unresponsiveness or unconsciousness, inability to speak, breathing that is slow, erratic, or has stopped completely, heartbeat that is slow, erratic, or has stopped completely, skin tone that has turned blue or gray, choking or gurgling sounds. If you think someone is overdosing, call 911 immediately. Start rescue breathing and administer naloxone if you have it. You cannot get in trouble for being on drugs, so always call 911 in an emergency. For more information about naloxone kits and training, visit TowardTheHeart.com. Thank you and stay safe. Sarah, what you're hearing right now, I'm just gonna move around the town a little bit so that you can hear my voice too. What you are currently hearing is a part of the music of Babel 7.16. I'm just gonna let it play for a little bit more. There is speaking in this dance show, so I will let it play until the speaking starts. And in the meantime, I'll let you know what Babel 7.16 is. So it is basically a dance show that is being presented via DigiDance. Uh, so in 2010, C.D. Larby Cherkwi and Damien Jale fo- joined forces with visual artist Anthony Gromley to create Babel Words, a dance performance that explores language and its relationship with nationhood, identity, and religion. Taking the tale of the Tower of Babel as its starting point, Gromley's five huge three-dimensional frames hint at a nameless intersection in a faceless city near the borders that define a no-man's-land. We watch as the action flows from private to public, intimacy to extroversion, and the individual to the collective, while choices of faith, space, and community are made, and we are reminded that to some, the tale of Babel represents the gates to enlightenment, to others, chaos, confusion, and conflict. The piece was performed nearly 150 times in cities all over the world for nearly seven years. For the 70th edition of Festival d'Avignon in 2016, the two choreographers created a new version of their Olivia Award-winning piece and transported it to the Cour d'Honneur of the Palais des Papes under the title of Babel 7.16. Ten new performers were added to the show, ten new characters making the story even more rich and complex. And the the reason that it's called Babel 7.16 is because... Um, it was July 2016, (laughs) very straightforward. And I'm just gonna quickly switch to another part of the performance where the music is just a bit different. And the reason I'm doing this is to show the diversity within the performance and the choreography the music everything um as you can hear as you heard the first part the first music that i played was more you know i don't know how to explain it i guess strict not flowy whereas this one is more flowy and this reflects on the movements and the choreography too it shows the diversity and diversity that's what i want to get into right now i'll let this play in the background (laughs) so the 22 dancers all of them wear everyday clothes on the performance which was surprising to me because usually dance shows have 
you know, specific costumes made for them. And they, usually dancers wear the same costume. If there's like a main dancer, like for example, in a ballet, there are principal ballerinas and there are soloists. So their, their costumes are usually different from Corp de Ballet, for example. Um, but in this performance, everyone's wearing different clothes and their clothes uh, match themselves. I would say because all of them are from different parts <laughs> of the world <laughs> all of them speak different languages there are 12 different languages featured in this show I understood like two of them <laughs> I want to say um, but I could be making this up and it might just be all in my head I thought I heard so in the very beginning um, they start with saying, uh, I think the word is like ground, like soil, you know, terra. They start saying that in different languages. I'm pretty sure I heard terra, but again, I might be making this up. I'm not sure, <laughs> but yeah. And just like the clothes and the differences in the music and the changes in the choreography the languages all that's you know that's what started this dance that's what inspired the two choreographers and that's what made this happen um if you don't know the story of the tower of babel so basically it is a myth um, about, sorry, <laughs> I got distracted. Oh my God, <laughs> who would have thought? So uh, the Tower of Babel is a, a story, a myth that follows people after the great flood. Um, they are speaking a single ling language and they are migrating eastwards and they come to the land of Shinar. And there they agree to build a city and a tower tall enough to reach heaven. God observes their city and their tower and confounds their speech so that they can no longer understand each other and scatters them around the world. And that is now how the world is. Everyone speaks different languages. There are so many languages in the world and everyone is scattered all over the globe. And yeah, so you can definitely tell that, that, you know, you can see the inspiration in the show. And it is very interesting because DJ Dance chose not to put subtitles for the performance. <laughs> so if you're listening to this show right now and you're understanding then that means you'll understand probably as much as I understood during the show <laughs> because there's this <coughs> oh my god I'm so sorry <coughs> I just choked on my own spit oh my god what's happening give me one second I'm gonna leave you with the dance I'll be right back okay I'm back we're feeling better um <laughs> What was I saying? Oh, there's this one main speaker who speaks in English and you kind of understand um, what's happening. It's kind of like a narration. I say kind of because it's not really a narration, but it gives you the idea of what's happening and what's going on. Um, you know, <laughs> I hope... I hope I'm making sense. But yeah, and in the show, as I read just now, um, there are, how do I put this? There are uh, frames, metal frames, very big frames. They can fit, it's, the frames are cubes. <laughs> They're in the shape of cubes. And they are so big that they can fit all of the dancers in the smallest one. And they use this um, cubes. Also, this is 
another section of the dance show. <laughs> uh, in these, and they use these cubes uh, in a mobile way. They move them, they use them as props, they use them as design. It's very interesting to see how the two choreographers incorporated metal cubes, big, huge metal cubes into dance and i i just want to say that babel 7.16 is definitely interesting